The great end for which men entered into society was to secure their property. That right is preserved sacred and incommunicable in all instances where it has not been taken away or abridged by some public law for the good of the whole. By the laws of England, every invasion of private property, be it ever so minute, is a trespass. No man can set foot upon my ground without my license, but he is liable to an action, though the damage be nothing. Now that assertion by Charles Pratt, the Earl of Camden, comes from a landmark case in 1765 known as Antic v. Carrington. And this is a case that gets to the heart of the topic that we will be discussing here today on Legalese, and that is the common law origin of the Fourth Amendment. Hey, greetings. Welcome back once again to Legal Ease. I am your host, Bob. I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Uh, and if you are new to this podcast, let me extend a special welcome to you. Uh, this is a podcast where we will be discussing uh, historical as well as current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, you can find this show on a number of different platforms. There is a video version that you can find on YouTube, Rumble, and Odyssey. There is the audio-only version available over on Anchor.fm. And you can find the full archive of both audio and video episodes, as well as tons of articles and essays of mine uh, over on Substack. And there are links to all of those pages down in the video's description. And before we really dig in here, I want to let you know uh, about one more thing we're checking out. Uh, and that is uh, my new book, Constitutional Slate of Hand, An Explicit History of Implied Powers, is now available over on Amazon in ebook and paperback format. So if you want to learn more about that or get a copy for yourself, there is a link to that as well down in the video's description. So let's just get right into it, shall we? So today we are going to be talking about the right to privacy, the common law, and the Fourth Amendment. Now, the right to privacy has one of the longest and richest legal and philosophical traditions of any provision that you can find anywhere in the Constitution. Now, it began as a right deeply rooted in the natural law philosophies of Aristotle, St. Augustine, and Thomas Aquinas. And it has a centuries-old recognition as well in the English common law, going back as far as the late Anglo-Saxon period. And we find this right to privacy writ large uh, in English constitutional law uh, as early as the Charter of Liberties, uh, which are also sometimes called the Coronation Charter. Now, these were issued in 1100 AD by Royal Proclamation of Henry I, wherein the right to privacy would become a fundamental and cherished cornerstone 
of English liberty for the next seven centuries before it was ultimately to be adopted as the fundamental common law right at the heart of the Fourth Amendment in 1791. And the Fourth Amendment reads, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the places to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Now, you would be hard-pressed to find another aspect of the Bill of Rights that is so intimately correlated with the experiences of our founders in that period immediately before uh, and during the Revolutionary War and our separation from Great Britain. The common law protection against unreasonable search and seizure is uh, also worth talking about and worth understanding as more than simply an interesting historical anecdote, and that is because it will help us to dispel a serious misunderstanding about the Fourth Amendment that is caused by our uh, inclination to define rights that happen to be enumerated in the Constitution as merely constitutional rights. As though those rights were either granted by the Constitution or as, as though they were never before articulated 17 they were never articulated before 1791. Now, this is obviously not true, um, but this is sort of the way that people view uh, these things a lot of times by using the phrase constitutional right. And it is this method of viewing our, you know, our rights, our constitutional rights um, that has led to our modern notion of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that tends to be seen simply as an obstacle to overzealous police power that is defined strictly through legal tests of substantive due process and procedural law. But understanding the original meaning and scope of this right illuminates precisely why we are in such a mess and why it is so commonly misread and misapplied uh, as far as modern Fourth Amendment jurisprudence goes. And really, what we end up with is, in many cases, a somewhat nonsensical and contradictory doctrine uh, whose major flaw is its complete dependence on judicial predilection. Now, the true purpose of the amendment was to restrict government power and reinforce the rights of the people as sovereign to determine the conditions under which the government could interfere in the privacies of life. So the proper way to understand the Fourth Amendment is first as a prohibition on promiscuous search and seizure and as a requirement for specificity in the warrants that are then granted. Now, 17th and 18th century common law took the position that outside of some very narrow circumstances, namely the hue and cry and the fleeing felon exception, the government could not enter into any home without a warrant, which put pressure on the Crown to issue very broad warrants without any real specificity. And this was especially true regarding the issuance of what are known as general warrants. 
Now, general warrants are an instrument issued by the court or executive branch that gives officials the authority to enter into a home or to search for private documents or seize them without any prior evidence of wrongdoing and without any specificity or particularity of the places to be searched and the persons or papers to be seized. It is not supported by oath or affirmation, and it generally amounts to a fishing expedition to find evidence of wrongdoing rather than being a warrant issued on evidence of wrongdoing as it should be. And it is because of this that for centuries prior to the American founding, uh, all the great English jurists uh, rejected general warrants as, uh, and, and these are the words of both Sir Edward Cook and William Blackstone, general warrants were the worst exercise of tyrannical power on the part of any government. Now, surprisingly, the first statement of freedom from unreasonable search and seizure to appear here uh, in the colonies outside of a common law context comes relatively lately. Uh, really, it first appeared uh, in a pamphlet uh, called The Rights of the Colonists and a List of Infringements and Violations of Rights that was published in 1772, and this was a document in which Sam Adams took the lead in drafting. But there is a long-established tradition of these rights through the colonies that have been adopted from the rich and ancient protections in the English common law of the right to privacy. And there are several landmark search and seizure cases that come from the common law that were essential to the development of this doctrine, uh, as it eventually would come to be adopted by not only our Constitution's framers and ratifiers, but by American courts generally. Uh, and the cases we're going to be talking about here are Semaine's case from 1604, Wilkes v. Woods from 1763, and Antic v. Carrington from 1765. And on top of those three cases from England, we are going to be talking about an example of a common law case that took place here in the United States as well, known as the Writs of Assistance case. Uh, it's also commonly referred to as Paxton's case. Uh, and this case came in 1761, and this marked a pivotal event in the earliest fomenting of the spirit of rebellion that would eventually blossom into the American Revolution. So the first case we're going to be talking about here today is Semaine's case. This was from 1604, and this was a common law case that held that the right of a homeowner to defend his or her premises against intrusion should yield only to those seeking to enter under lawful authority like to make an arrest. This case was demonstrative of early 17th century civil cases involving execution of process, and the case was reported by Sir Edward Cook while he was serving as the Attorney General of England in 1604, and this case is famous for a quote from Sir Edward Cook when he said that, The house of everyone is to him as his castle and fortress, as well for his defense against injury and violence, as for his repose. Now, this same sentiment would be later expressed in much stronger terms by William Pitt when he said, 
the poorest man may, in his cottage, bid defiance to all the force of the crown. It may be frail, its roof may shake, the wind may blow through it, the storm may enter, and the rain may enter, but the king of England cannot enter. All his force dares not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement. And in Semaine's case, the Court of Common Pleas recognized the right of the homeowner to defend his house against unlawful entry, even by agents of the king. Now, at the same time, it also recognized the authority of the appropriate officers to break and enter upon notice in order to arrest or to execute the king's process. Now, Cook argued that general warrants were outside of the common law because they retained for the crown the particulars of suspicion, and by using general warrants, the crown did not have to provide evidence in open court, so the issue went to rule of law as a constraint on government power. And in the United States, uh, it is actually Semaine's case that is recognized in our law as establishing the knock-and-announce rule. Now, our next two cases, uh, Wilkes v. Woods and Entick v. Carrington, are the consequence of a single event. And this has to do with a case that involved these two men, Wilkes and Entick, who were two pamphleteers who had been accused of seditious libel. They had criticized the ministers of the king, and at least legally speaking, thus they had criticized the king himself. Therefore, warrants of the search were issued by the king's agents, and the pamphleteers' homes were ransacked, and during the search, all of their papers and books were seized. Now, because UK constitutional law lacks an exclusionary rule, uh, the pair instead decided to sue for damages that resulted from the search and for the void warrants served on them that they claimed were illegal. So the first case is Wilkes v. Wood, and this established the principle that general warrants are normally illegal. A government cannot simply enter, excuse me, a government cannot simply give the police authority to enter or search a person's property or possessions in hopes of finding incriminating evidence. The warrant must specify what government authorities believe they will find and where they believe they will find it. The remedy Wilkes obtained was substantial monetary damages. And the decision in Wilkes was also reaffirmed two years later in a case known as Money v. Leach. Uh, and here, too, the court held a general warrant to seize some person not specifically named is indeed illegal. And the next case is N. Tick v. Carrington. And this would be the most famous of the common law search and seizure cases. And Entick also pursued a, er, pursued a civil action against state officers who, pursuant to general warrants, had raided many homes and other places in search of materials connected with John Wilkes's polemical pamphlets. Now, Entick sued because agents had forcibly broken into his house, broken into his locked desks and boxes, and seized many printed charts, pamphlets, and the like. 
and in an opinion that was uh, as sweeping in its terms as could be, the court declared the warrant and the behavior it authorized subversive of, quote, all the comforts of society, end quote. And the issuance of the warrant for the seizure of all of a person's papers, rather than only those alleged to be criminal in nature, was held by the court to be contrary to the genius of the laws of England. Besides its general character, the court said, the warrant was bad because it was not issued on a showing of probable cause, and no record was required to be made of what had been seized. And so, in Entick v. Carrington, uh, they had been... Uh, this case has been cited by uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, besides just generally referring to it as, uh, quote, a great judgment and one of the landmarks of English liberty uh, and one of the permanent monuments of the British Constitution. Uh, it is commonly seen as a guide to understanding what our framers meant in writing the Fourth Amendment. Now, Antic was a landmark case for the establishment of civil liberties of individuals and limiting the scope of executive power. It is famous for a number of dictums from Lord Camden, including one in which he said, If it is law, it will be found in our books. If it is not found there, it is not law. And in Antic, the judge further rejected the Crown's efforts to use general warrants and again, Charles Pratt, first Earl of Camden, and who was the Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas at the time, explained that the law denied the Crown the authority to enter its subjects' domiciles at will. Every invasion of private property, be it ever so minute, is yet a trespass. Now, this protection extended to letters, documents, and papers of individuals. Every man was entitled to live free from the gaze of the crown. Now, these concepts have been reinforced by Sir Matthew Hale's treatise, uh, Historita Placitorum Coronae, and William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. And finally here today, we are going to be talking about the case from 1761. This is known as the Writs of Assistance case. And this is a case that made the career of a proto-revolutionary firebrand named James Otis following an epic five-hour oration he gave on behalf of a conglomeration of Boston merchants bringing suit against the use of general warrant. Now, Otis had been an advocate general in the Vice Admiralty Court until the Crown had issued the writs of assistance and this caused Otis to resign his post in protest, subsequently allowing him to represent the Boston merchants in their efforts to stop the application of the writs of assistance. And Otis argued the ability of the Crown to issue general warrants, putting them beyond Parliament's powers, and thus equated to a violation of English liberty. And uh, during this argument given by James Otis in court, there was a young, uh, largely unknown lawyer uh, in the court at the time who was there to witness the entirety of this legendary oration. He would later go on to cite that moment of Otis's performance as the moment in which, quote, the child's independence was then and there born, end quote. 
Now, that young unknown lawyer was the future revolutionary John Adams. And really, the central issue in Paxton involved resistance to abridgments of the common law right that protected against unreasonable searches and seizures. And this is the reason that James Otis is genuine, uh, generally credited as being the father of the Fourth Amendment. Now, Otis would go on to explain that the colonists, upon leaving England, expected their rights as Englishmen to follow with them, but they clearly had not, and it was because of this that the writs of assistance proliferated. And James Otis referred to them as the worst exercise of arbitrary power and the most destructive of English liberty that was ever found in an English law book. Now, at its base was the need to restrain government power. So when Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and North Carolina crafted their state constitutions, all of them outlawed general warrants. And so too did the founding generation insist that there would be a prohibition on general warrants. And this included everything outside of particularized warrants issued within the scope of the Fourth Amendment provision or those other very narrow exceptions we mentioned at the beginning, which are the fleeing felon in flight and the hue and cry exception that are recognized at common law. And the government historically could not enter your home or obtain your private papers. So this means the original understanding of the Fourth Amendment is not as it is widely considered today, an obstacle to preventing too much permeating police power over surveillance. Instead, it is a restriction on government power, and it forbids access to the intimate details outside these constitutional structures. Now, something worth noting is that at our republic's founding, the original understanding of the term reasonable was understood to mean the reason of the common law, and unreasonable meant that which went against the common law. And because of this, general warrants clearly went against the common law and were thus unreasonable. Now, uh, this was really embodied uh, in the words of George Mason when he said, we claim nothing but the liberty and privileges of Englishmen in the same degree as if we had continued amongst our brethren in Great Britain. Now, in the colonies, it was actually smuggling rather than seditious libel that afforded the leading examples of the necessity for protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. In order to enforce revenue laws, English authorities had made use of these writs of assistance to search and seize prohibited and uncustomed goods and commanding all subjects to assist in these endeavors. Now, Otis asserted that the authorizing statutes were invalid because they conflicted with the English Constitution. Now, Otis unfortunately lost his case and the writs were issued and used, but his arguments were much cited in the colonies, not only 
uh, immediately on the subject at hand, but also with regard to the importance and role of judicial review. Now, James Otis was quoted as saying, At a time when the finest writers of the most polite nations of the continent of Europe are enraptured with the beauties of the civil constitution of Great Britain and envy her, no less for her freedom of the sons than for her immense wealth and military glory. But let the origin of government be placed where it may, the end of it manifestly the good of the whole. And here he goes on to quote Marcus Tullius Cicero, Salus Populi, Supreme Lex Esto. And he says, this is the law of nature and part of that grand charter given to the human race, though many of them are too afraid to assert it. And it is in that one pregnant phrase there uh, from his 1764 treatise, The Rights of British Colonists, that Otis reasserted and justified the right of privacy as being central to the English common law. Well, anyways, that is going to do it for me here today. Thank you so much for joining me here today uh, on, on Legalese. Don't forget to uh, go check out uh, my new book, Constitutional Sleight of Hand and Explicit History of Implied Powers. Uh, and also, uh, if you would uh, you know, help me to fuel Al Gore's rhythm by subscribing to the channel, which also makes sure, of course, you know that you find out when new episodes are released. Uh, and, you know, if you uh, like this, hit that like button. If you disliked it, hit the dislike button. Uh, and please feel free to leave me a comment with your thoughts about any part of this episode. Uh, and so anyways, until next time, uh, thank you all so much for joining me here today on Legalese. Uh, and as always... Cartago de Lenda Est. Fuck up.